Every nation has a story that is retold with the words, it was the darkest time in our history. For the United States, that time was the American Civil War. A conflict as much a battle for the soul of America as it was one of politics, economics, and ideology. It was centered around the concept of identity, what it meant to be an American, and of course, all tied up in the tragic story of slavery. It was a war that would see many new technologies and weapons employed, laying the blueprints for the future of warfare. It was also brutal and bloody and personal. There are countless stories of those who fought in that monstrous conflict, and in today's episode, we're going to examine three stories of combatants who became revered by their respective sides and hated and feared by their opponents. Here are three of the fiercest fighters of the American Civil War. Welcome to Wars of the World. When Jack Hinson started running his tobacco farm in Stewart County, Tennessee, he had little idea that he was setting up on what would become prized strategic real estate for both sides during the Civil War. During the war, the region would become colloquially known as Tween the Rivers, and was so sought after because of its elevated position, making it easier to defend, and its abundance of farms with which to supply troops. As the Confederate states of which his native Tennessee was a member began to make motions to break away from the Union, Jack Hinson took the difficult step of trying to remain neutral in the fighting. His farm had been built thanks to slavery, but he had by 1861 released his slaves, although many of them chose to remain under his employment. Despite his neutral stance, two of his sons had elected to join the Confederate cause against the Union armies, who were locked in bitter battles with Confederate forces throughout the latter's home state. With Union forces generally better equipped and better trained, the local Confederate soldiers, like Hinson's sons, used their knowledge of the region to conduct a guerrilla warfare campaign, setting traps and ambushes for Union soldiers. Understandably, this made Union soldiers extremely anxious and suspicious of the local population, who may be supporting these guerrilla fighters, known as bushwhackers. There is some debate as to why Jack Hinson, known as Old Jack to his community, suddenly went from being just a man trying to get by in difficult times to joining the Confederate cause. A persistent claim is that two of his other sons were arrested by Union troops, who accused them of being bushwhackers, before executing them without trial or any evidence of any kind. The sons were then decapitated, and their heads placed on the fence of the family farm, while it was ransacked by Union troops looking for weapons. However, this claim is often disputed, or at the very least viewed with suspicion, because there is no evidence that it occurred at all. As a result, some historians claim that he was always sympathetic to the Confederate side and was simply buying time or gathering information on Union troops nearby, his farm briefly playing host to Union General Ulysses S. Grant. By far the most commonly accepted reason for his taking up arms against the Union 
is simply the conduct of Union troops to the locals in general. Union forces occupying the area played havoc with the local farmers, whose crops and cattle were often requisitioned for the Union themselves, seriously damaging the local economy. Despite the anti-slavery stance of the North, the Union troops also took slaves away from their owners only to force them into servitude for their own cause. What is known is that Hinson and his family were eventually turned out of their home, which was later burned to the ground by Union troops. For someone like Hinson, who was just trying to get by, he must have felt like he was left with no choice. He had to fight to protect his family, and so he picked up a rifle, and old Jack was off to war. But first, he had vengeance on his mind. On December 31st of 1862, he reportedly traveled to a nearby farm, which was home to a Swiss immigrant who had also declared his neutrality during the fighting. He and old Jack had been embroiled in a long-standing feud since before the war, and after he was expelled from his farm, old Jack suspected that this neighbor was responsible, and so shot him dead. Joining in the guerrilla style of warfare of his Confederate compatriots, old Jack soon demonstrated his lethal skill with a rifle, and quickly became a prolific sniper. Living in caves, he would frequently wait for Union boats to come down the Tennessee River, where he would pick off the highest ranking Union officers he could, and dispatch them with a single round of his 50 caliber Kentucky long rifle. With each kill, he would add a notch in the barrel of his gun to keep score, and his gun would eventually have 36 individual notches. However, many historians credit him with many more kills. Some sources cite as many as 100 Union troops fell to Old Jack, making him the most successful sniper of the war. One of Hinson's most well-known exploits involved him acting as a guide for Confederate Cavalry Commander Nathan Bedford Forrest. With Hinson's guidance, Forrest was able to mount a successful attack against the Union force at Johnsonville, which was home to significant supplies fueling the Union campaign. Recognizing his importance to the Confederacy, the Union troops conducted large-scale sweeps in pursuit of him, but Old Jack always managed to escape. Old Jack would survive the war, but his son Robert, who commanded a band of Confederate guerrillas, was not so fortunate. He also lost two daughters to illness, which many attribute to being kicked off his land by Union troops. Being on the losing side, his name fell into obscurity in the post-war years, only for his story to then be rediscovered and retold by historians afterwards, making his name a legend in the state of Tennessee, for which he fought. Wars are not just won in battles on land or sea. Key to the success of one side is to damage or destroy the economy of the other, thus denying them the ability to conduct war at all. An even more vital part of this aspect of warfare is to seize the supplies earmarked for your enemy, and then use them to power your own war machine. But sometimes there are few resources left with the combatants to conduct such a campaign against an enemy's economy. Enter the privateers. Often likened to pirates, the crews of privateer vessels are individuals employed by their government to hunt down enemy vessels, particularly merchant vessels, and sink or seize them. It was dangerous work, particularly for Confederate privateers during the American Civil War, 
as Abraham Lincoln's government had decreed that the Confederacy was not legitimate, and therefore neither were their privateers. They were thus treated as pirates if caught, and often hanged. Driven by Confederate ideology, or simply good old fashioned greed, the threat of a hangman's noose did little to deter Confederate captains from acquiring a charter from the Confederate government to seize Union vessels. One of a number of vessels repurposed as privateers was C.S. Jefferson Davis, named in honor of the Confederacy's first and ultimately only president. The name was shortened by most to the Jeff Davis. Built originally as a fast sailing brig in New Orleans in 1845, the vessel later became the illegal slave ship Echo until it was captured by the US Navy off Cuba in 1858. Auctioned off, it was purchased by a group of shareholders from Charleston, South Carolina, who then proceeded to repurpose the vessel yet again, this time for war against the North, resplendent in the name of their Southern Commander-in-Chief. But a weapon is only as good as its captain, and in this regard, the Jeff Davis had one of the finest captains in the Confederate fleet in the form of Louis M. Coxeter. Considered a fair man who treated his prisoners well, Coxeter had already made a name for himself as a competent sailor and was one of the investors in the ship prior to the outbreak of war. By his side was his first mate, one William Ross Postal, whose career extended back to when Texas was independent and had its own navy in which he served. Together, these two men and their crew of 70 plus would soon become the most sought after pirates for the Union Navy, thanks to a staggering period of operations starting in late June, 1861. Coxeter and the Jeff Davis were waved off from Charleston on June 28th to scenes of great pomp and circumstance, for the city was also celebrating the anniversary of the defeat of British Admiral Sir Peter Parker during the American Revolutionary War almost a century earlier. Using his skill, Coxeter steered the Jeff Davis, armed with just five six-year-old British-built iron cannons, past the Union warships, attempting to capture privateers such as himself. Having broken free, Coxeter would begin a campaign of plunder that even the most legendary pirates would have been proud of. In just seven weeks, he and his men would capture nine vessels of varying sizes and attempt to sail them and their cargo into Confederate ports. According to one of his victims interviewed later, they had misidentified the Jeff Davis due to its French-cut hempen sails, and by the time they realized their mistake, Coxeter was upon them. Such dramatic exploits in such a short period of time sent shockwaves up and down the east coast of North America, and Coxeter instantly became the most wanted man of the day short of the Confederate president himself, whose name adorned his ship. However, it was not all success for Coxeter and his men, for capturing their prizes was one thing, but getting them back was quite another. Once the ship was captured, members of Coxeter's crew would be assigned to command it back, but sadly for them, not all possessed the skills needed to evade the Union blockade. One of the ships seized was the Enchantress, which was placed under the charge of William W. Smith and a small group to guard and keep the crew in line. Attempting to reach Florida, the vessel was intercepted by the Union ship USS Albatross and recaptured. Treated as pirates, Smith and his men were clasped in irons and transported to New York, where they stood trial and only barely escaped the death penalty. Another of Coxeter's prizes was the Alvarado, which found itself being pursued to shore by the USS Jamestown. 
Unable to keep their prize, the men from the Jeff Davis burned the ship as they made their escape inland. But perhaps the most incredible tale concerning the vessels captured by Coxeter was that of the S.J. Waring. Believed to have been sailed south, authorities were surprised to see the vessel sail into New York, having been retaken by her crew. The effort to recapture the vessel began when the black cook on board took an axe and killed three of the conquering crew as they slept in the night. In some cases, Coxeter allowed the crews of the ships he captured to sail away after relieving them of valuable cargo. In more than one instance, he found his crew numbers swelling thanks to an influx of deserters from the ships he captured who wished to switch to the Confederate side. At least two vessels were auctioned off while another was scuttled. While Coxeter and the Jeff Davis were feared by the sailors of Union merchant fleets, they were adored by the Confederates as heroes. And when the vessel arrived back in Florida on August 16th, crowds gathered to welcome them home. Unfortunately, they arrived during a heavy storm that lashed the Florida coastline, and not even Coxeter's skill could prevent the Jeff Davis from grounding, bringing the ship's short but successful career to an end. Coxeter attempted to raise the funds for another privateer vessel, but was unable to do so. And so he resorted to captaining blockade runners, using his skills at bypassing the Union fleet to sneak vital supplies and exports past the Union blockade that was attempting to strangle Confederate trade. Given his success aboard the Jeff Davis, it was not uncommon for the Confederate ship owners to enter into bidding wars to secure his services right up to the very end of the war. Her name is one of those most associated with the famous Underground Railroad that helped slaves escape from the southern states into the northern ones where slavery was illegal. However, Harriet Tubman was also a pivotal figure in the story of the Civil War. Born Araminta Ross in Dorchester County, Maryland during March 1822, she was the fifth of nine children, all born into a world of slavery where she watched her siblings sold for profits to neighboring farms and businesses. Affectionately named Minty by her friends and family, her life would be forever changed when, as a child, she was struck by a two-pound metal weight to the head. It was thrown by one of the overseers who watched over the slave workers. The weight was actually being thrown at another slave who was attempting to flee, but Harriet got in the way. The injury changed her for life, for she would suffer frequent blackouts for the rest of her days because of it. A slave who was prone to such blackouts was not easy for her owner to sell, and so she ended up working with her father in the lumber industry. While working in the lumber trade, she encountered something she never thought was real, freed slaves coming down from the north to transport the logs to northern mills. While interacting with these free men, she quickly learned of the Underground Railroad and the secret methods of communication they employed. In 1840, Tubman's father was freed from slavery by his owners, and Minty made efforts to ensure her mother was also freed, going so far as to pay a white attorney $5 to investigate her case, a substantial sum at the time. However, her mother's recent new owners refused to abide by her previous owners' agreements, and the family was in no position to contest this at court. In 1844, she married a freed slave named John Tubman, and after taking his surname, she later changed her first name to Harriet in honor of her mother. 
1849, Harriet Tubman and two of her brothers made their bid for freedom, going on the run with a $100 reward posted for their recapture. Unfortunately, her brothers had a change of heart and she felt compelled to join them as they returned. But Harriet had tasted freedom and it was not long before she escaped again. Falling in with the Underground Railroad, she made it to freedom in Philadelphia. But this was not the end of her incredible story. Why should she be free and her family and friends remain enslaved? Thus, she became a prominent member of the railroad, helping slaves escape the oppression in the South, earning the nickname of She Moses in reference to the biblical figure famed for leading his people to freedom. When war broke out in 1861, Harriet Tubman saw this as an opportunity to finally end slavery in the United States and free her people. Provided, of course, that the war ended with a Union victory. Joining a group of freed slaves and white abolitionists, she hoped to offer her services to the Union cause, but initially met with resistance, she took on the role of nurse for a brief time. However, things began to change when on January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all slaves in the United States and eventually the Confederacy. Tubman's role was now changing from menial but vital nursing work to using her connections and expertise with the Underground Railroad in order to establish a ring of spies, gathering intelligence on the Confederate forces. But her role would go far beyond spymaster and demonstrating her courage and determination she was soon on the front lines with Colonel James Montgomery, an abolitionist who commanded an all-black regiment, the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers. Together, Montgomery and Tubman led a force of 300 men aboard three gunboats out of the St. Helena Sound towards the Combahee River. In the early hours of June 2nd, the force split in two in order to conduct raids on Confederate plantations containing hundreds of slaves. In the chaos that followed, some 700 slaves were rescued under heavy Confederate fire, aimed at both the raiders and the fleeing slaves, many of whom were carrying children in their arms. As gunboats made their escape, the freed slaves were still in a panic, and not knowing their regional dialect, Harriet Tubman began singing for them in an effort to calm their nerves. It was a stunning victory for the Union and a humiliating defeat for the Confederates. Tubman's efforts in the raid did not go unnoticed by the Union press, who bestowed upon her the title of heroine of the Union war effort. However, despite her courage, she was denied a soldier's wage, for women were not allowed to serve in the army. Being undeterred, she pushed on, knowing that the final goal, freedom, was worth more than any fee and she continued in her role coordinating with the Union's spy networks and at times leading dangerous scouting parties behind enemy lines. Her ability to communicate with the local black populations was invaluable, and by the time of the final Confederate defeat in 1865, it would be no exaggeration to say that Harriet Tubman had done as much for victory and freedom for her people as any one person could do, be they black, white, male or female. Sadly, as history would prove, the struggle for equality in the reunified United States was far from over, and with her powerful personality and determined nature, Tubman campaigned for equal rights not only for the black population, but women in general. Passing away in 1913, 
she has since become an icon of freedom and courage, inspiring people of all racial backgrounds to stand up for what they believe in, and pioneering the employment of women in the armed forces on the front lines. She was truly an American hero. And there you have three of the fiercest fighters of the American Civil War. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.